Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I want to tell you about this kids' show called City of Ghosts. It's available right now on Netflix. So I will say first that it is a little hard to explain, but let me start with the animation, the look of the show. The characters are three-dimensional. They're mostly children. They look a little bit like a little bit like more thoughtfully created Nintendo Wii avatars. The show is set in Los Angeles, where, by the way, we record Bullseye. And the backgrounds are real places that thousands of people here in L.A. encounter every day. A subway station in Koreatown, a skate park in Venice, restaurants in East L.A. The premise of City of Ghosts is pretty simple. It's framed as a documentary, and your hosts are a group of kids who are all members of the Ghost Club. The Ghost Club, as the name implies, gets reports of ghosts in the city, goes to find them, and once they do find them, sits down to interview them. The members of the Ghost Club are voiced by kids with little to no acting experience. The questions they ask the ghosts sound genuine because, well, because they are genuine. And the ghosts and the other adults in the show are also real people, telling more or less real stories. City of Ghosts takes the real world we live in, sometimes a scary, alienating place, and combines it with a plot device that can be even more scary, ghosts. And despite all that, it isn't a scary or alienating show. In fact, it is the opposite, warm, inviting, and illuminating. It gives the viewer, whether that viewer is a kid or an adult, a better idea of the world around us, without sacrificing our capacity for imagination. That's all hard to do, but Elizabeth Ito, the show's creator, has managed to pull it off beautifully. Before we get to my interview with Elizabeth, I wanted to play you a little bit from the show's first episode. This scene features an interview with a ghost named Janet, who's haunting a new restaurant in Boyle Heights in L.A. Janet is voiced by Judy Hayashi, In real life, Judy is the daughter of the owners of Otomi-san, a Japanese diner of long standing in that same neighborhood. Well, so my mom used to own the cleaners. um, So I would, after school, go to her cleaners and I would do my homework at the cleaners um, until she finished. Right next to my mom's cleaners, there was a Japanese cafe called Fuji Cafe. All the servers knew me, you know, as, a, as the daughter from next door. Sometimes my mom would go, we would go after her, she was done with work because she'd be too tired to cook at home. And sometimes I'll order just like a rice ball and they'll make it even though it's not on the menu. My mom always, I guess, wanted to do a restaurant. She still wanted to kind of live out that dream. And because she knew the previous owner, they sold the restaurant to my mom. What food did your mom used to make that you missed the most? Hmm. I mean, I haven't found a place that uh, I I was like, oh, this temper is better than my mom's. I'm biased because it's my mom and I love her cooking. 
Elizabeth Ito, welcome to Bullseye. I'm so happy to have you on the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. I'm so excited to have you in the studio. You're the first guest that I've been in the same room with in a year and a half. It's a real thrill. I'm I'm super honored to be here. <laughs> and thank you for getting vaccinated to keep us all safe. Yeah, no, no problem. <laughs> so when you were conceiving of City of Ghosts, you had to figure out how to describe it to someone at Netflix so that they could give you money to make it. How did you figure that out? Like, what did you say to describe this show? It was a tough one. I think at the beginning it was saying, like, not over-explaining it, um, kind of boiling it down to the things that uh, should be really appealing to, I think, any studio to make a kid's show, that it's about something that understands... uh, well, for one thing, it was like programming for kids that was quieter, that came from a different place than other stuff that was out there. Uh, so I very much um, centered it basically saying, like, I'd noticed when I was trying to find things to watch with my son, who's a really sensitive kid, that there wasn't anything, even kind of within the preschool landscape, there wasn't very much that was like quieter. Um, for us to watch together. Um, so I was looking for something that's similar to like the feeling of watching um, like old Mr. Rogers videos, like the process videos where they go to like a crayon factory or a place like that. Um, so it was really making it about what I was trying to bring to kids and um, see things through the way that I felt I would like to see kids, <laughs> the way kids see things. <laughs> Yeah, I do feel like having watched a lot of kids' entertainment, because I have young kids as well, that the surface take, the first level take is kids' entertainment is so dramatically better than it was when I was a kid. Like, the difference is absolutely night and day. I can name a few good shows from my childhood that are actually good, like Mr. Rogers and Sesame Street. I mean, The Voyage of the Mimi maybe was good. I don't know. But it's a short list. Right? <laughs> I think Batman maybe was actually good. I'm, I'm not 100% sure on that. But I'm, I'm really impressed with the Voyage of the Mimi inclusion. Like, uh, <laughs> I was I'm way very into happy that. With that. I was way into that show. I was way into the deaf lady uh, showing tiny Ben Affleck how to gather water with a tarp, condensation on a tarp, and they got stuck on an island. This was a maybe a Canadian educational TV show about a whale boat that got – a whale science boat that got – yeah, I have very, on an island. very clear memories of watching that in, in my junior high, like, seventh grade biology class. <laughs> <laughs> I think I watched it when I was staying home sick from seventh grade. Um, so television shows are, are much, much better. But often I think the way that they are better is that they follow the kind of Nickelodeon kids TV show revolution of the 1990s, which is that just a lot of stuff happens and it's very arresting and pretty funny even for adults often, but it can feel a little assaultive. (laughs) (laughs) Did you notice your kids like having a little bit, like there's something that hooks into kids from that, but it also sometimes can leave them a little jittered by it. Yeah, I think I also get jittered by it to be um, totally honest. Like, I I mean... In the most selfish way, I make a lot of the stuff I make for myself um, more than anybody else. And, like, I honestly get really tired at how fast stuff cuts sometimes. Um, Like, similarly, it's like when your kids are really little, they always tell you 
don't show them stuff that cuts really fast because you're going to ruin their brains for the rest of their lives. So I think that was another factor that went into me like searching for more stuff to watch with my son that I wasn't going to destroy his brain somehow. And yeah, there's very few things you can find currently um, that sometimes even when there are things that are likable that don't cut really fast to keep up with everything else that um, catches their attention that way. Yeah. The show is also about cities generally and Los Angeles specifically. Was that always part of the idea? Yeah. From the very beginning, I think, like in the same way that uh, my short about my brother was really just centered around my personal life, I thought, well, I I do want to do a show about the history of L.A. Um, And then I think as we started talking about it, there was this realization of like, oh, yeah, this could be broader. But yeah, definitely starting with the idea that L.A. was a place that was really unique. And I wanted to capture how that how that is for me, like why that is for me. Do you remember seeing shows when you were a kid that were about the city in a way that you related to as a kid who grew up in L.A.? And I mean the city like broadly, not even just the city of L.A., but just the idea of cities. To be honest, like some of my fondest memories of programming that was really specific to here was like Huell Hauser. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Some of the first things that I remember watching where I was like, that's my city, (laughs) where, like, he went to, like, a peach cobbler restaurant or takeout place that was really close to where I lived. And um, And we should—I'm sorry to cut you off. We should explain Hauser is a—was a local public television personality whose show that he created himself was also syndicated throughout California— and he was this, a Southern guy with a big with a big drawl who would go to missions and Langer's Delicatessen and marvel at them in a way that is difficult to describe in its like pure majesty. Like he's truly an extraordinary, like the the Mister Rogers of going around it and pointing at civic landmarks. Yeah, and he. He started with Videolog. Did you watch his show Videolog? That was like a predecessor to... um, California's Gold. Yeah. um, That was really early. So like, I mean, it was even uh, less produced. (laughs) (laughs) It's hard to imagine. The, The aesthetics of the show essentially were him talking to his cameraman while a long unedited shot played of him wandering around an avocado field. And it was, it's absolutely transfixing and delightful in its ridiculousness, but also in its sincere brilliance. Yeah. So, I mean, that's the first, first and only thing that came to mind. And like, <laughs> maybe like <laughs> die hard because <laughs> they go to uh, Nakatomi Plaza. So, and I remember thinking like, oh, that's in Century City. So, uh, yeah, maybe <laughs> those are the first two things that came to my brain. But I think, I mean, Huell Hauser and Videolog and all of that and that homemadeness of what he did, I think that definitely had a, a big, made a big impression on me. <laughs> I hosted a menswear video show and we had a premiere party for the very first episode at a friend's store in Pasadena. And somebody said to me jokingly, this was 10 or 12 years ago. Somebody said to me jokingly, 
you should invite Huel Hauser to it. And I'm from San Francisco, and we didn't have Huel Hauser when I was a kid. So I had only experienced him a few times here in L.A. since I'd moved. And I was like, uh, yeah, okay, fine. I'll invite Huel Hauser. And I went on HuelHauser.com and found a link and sent an email, and he came. And <laughs> it was like we were at a house party in Vallejo, and E-40 walked through the door. Like, people flipped out. And he's just there, and he's like, hi, guys. It's me, Huel. It's great to have everybody here. <laughs> so tell me about menswear. <laughs> you know? And it was, like, it, was a, it was like a genuinely magical experience in my life because he really brought that to the world. Like, fully. I have a, vo- I have a voicemail on my phone that I've been saving from Huel Hauser for 10 years I tried to get him on this show, and he passed away, unfortunately, a, a, a month or so after he left this call while we were still trying to figure out the details. But there's something incredible about him. And the thing that – I mean, your show made me think of Hauser because it has that quality, while it has a very different tone, uh, it has that same quality of kind of like open-heartedness to people and places. And that must have been part of what sparked the excitement about about making something like that. Yeah, I think, you know, like, there's a lot of immigrant struggle stories, and those are definitely interesting and have a place. But I think, especially, like, for making programming for children, you try to think a lot about what kinds of stories are helpful to them. So through that, I think, is uh, stuff like City of Ghosts helps, where it shows joyful stories like with some sadness in there but weaved in in a way where it's like yeah within (laughs) within these cities there's so much of a of a depth of what you can experience (laughs) i spent some time recently thinking about why i cared so much about sesame street as a kid and i mean part of it was because sesame street is a great show i mean that's why it's sesame street but it occurred to me that as a kid growing up in the city, almost all of my media was about back to the future type kids, like kids who skateboarded from in their cul-de-sac, which had no meaning to me at all, like truly no meaning to me at all. And even though Sesame Street is set in a kind of abstracted version of New York, which was 3,000 miles from where I lived in San Francisco, just the mere fact that it had the sense of urbanity that, like, everyone was there together knocking into each other was so important to me. And just that feeling of, like, oh, this is like when I go down and talk to the lady at the corner store, you know? Like, that feeling. Yeah, Man, I mean, (laughs) like Sesame Street, that's totally true. And the early Sesame Street, especially like, I guess what's now like old school Sesame Street, the people felt not like super shiny. (laughs) I mean, same with Muppets. Like, I think that's why those are so appealing to me, especially the early ones. Like, there's like like a crudeness to it, but... It's also still amazing to me whenever I think about Muppets now to like realize 
how much life they've put into this thing that's like a piece of foam on somebody's hand. Not to like digress onto something, but like I was watching a clip lately of Miss Piggy and Charles Grodin, and you never like you never once think about he's holding somebody's um, <laughs> forearm yeah. like this. You know, it's not it's not actually a character, but it's it is a character. You know, like it never. Yeah, I don't know. It's amazing to me. <laughs> Why did you make the choice to make the show substantially based on interviews rather than scripting narratives? I I just really love kind of like improvisational stuff that has to do with like real people and like how we really talk <laughs> and all the kind of funny stories that people have to tell about themselves and their lives um, and f finding ways to integrate that into this larger story of, about the city. I don't know. Like, there's so many things that I don't enjoy as much when they're kind of watered down, like when, they're, when somebody else takes a story that somebody else has about themselves and they try to write it for an actor or for a character I, I just get so much joy out of figuring out how do we animate that particular person's story and that voice in this way that really captures everything that's so great about the way real people tell their stories. <laughs> Give me an example. Tell me someone that you talked to for the show and how you thought about how to represent them in animation. The first person that I'm thinking of is really JMD. Like, he just floated into my mind, so I'm going to go with him because... Um, I think when we very first started researching that that neighborhood to figure out like who do we want to talk to, what kinds of things do we want to talk about that are happening there, I met up with him in Lamert and he he just toured us around and it it really felt like an old friend uh, or he felt like an old friend that I just had never known. So I guess that's a weird way to describe it, but like, and there's so much about the way that he talks that if you hear him speak and you're from there, you kind of are like automatically connect, like, oh, he must be from around where I came from, like South LA, because there's a way that he talks. <laughs> so it was sort of just everything about meeting uh, him and likewise, like meeting most of the people where they became characters in the show, it was like this feeling of like, this feels like exactly what we want to capture. This feels like the right person to play this role. This part of their story feels like it fits into the, the narrative that we're working on in the show. Um, so instead of finding an actor to act as if they're this person, let's just get them directly. And then, so with JMD too, it was also not only his voice, but then uh, it was important to me, like, is there a way to overlap his drumming into the soundtrack of the show? Because we want it to feel like his rhythms and and then we found a way to make that happen. So I think it was just trying to find the things that like shine to me as representative of these people and, and putting that into the show. <laughs> Let's hear a little bit of JMD from the episode of City of Ghosts that's about Lemert Park here in Los Angeles. In this scene, there's a kid detective interviewing JMD who is, in the show, a ghost. What was Lemert like when you lived here? It was uh, beautiful in the daytime. At night, it was a whole nother life. 
You know, there's uh, a lot of seedy things going on late at night. It just wasn't good. Jazz seemed to wash all that away. Your music changed everything. You see all of these people sitting outside playing chess, listening to music, having coffee, having conversations about worldly events, uh, culture, and things of that. And then all of a sudden, the riffraff didn't have a place. They didn't have a foothold anymore. Nobody said, get out. They just kind of like, well, this ain't the place for me. Were you worried about making a show that felt like tourism or anthropology? <laughs> what, what do you mean, like, anthropology? <laughs> I mean, like, I, I feel like often when media takes on the representation of underheard voices, often the way that it's done is by giving a cultural tour of a place and describing the people as though they are aliens. <laughs> um, and I know that like, like as a young person, when I listened to public radio and there was stuff about young people, I would be, that would make me mad. Or as a, person who lived in the inner city and I would hear people talk about the inner city that would make me mad. And it wasn't even just people who were getting it wrong. It was also people who were, who felt patronizing in their tone about this place or this type of being in the world that was native to me. Yeah. That's really interesting. <laughs> I've never heard, nobody's ever asked me that, but the easy answer is yes. <laughs> <laughs> I was worried about it a bit. I think like my version of thinking of, of worrying about it was like, like with Welcome to My Life, my short, I had something that I understood that was easy to like kind of do whatever I wanted with in some regards because like I know my family so well. But when I suggested the idea of City of Ghosts, I think I was nervous because um, first of all, there's limitations to what I know about my own city. Um, so there was that fear. And then, like you're saying, it's it's so many cultures that I knew would be outside of my own <laughs> experience um, that I was definitely pretty terrified that I was going to do that, that I was going to treat it like I was some sort of explorer discovering <laughs> this new thing that I'm introducing people to. And I um, there were some times where we did have to kind of have just meetings and, and stuff about, you know, outlines and where we were going with them in those kinds of concerns. How did you address that? Um, sometimes it was like avoiding going a certain direction. Like for the Tongva episode... We definitely had to take a while to figure out who should this story be about? Like, who's who's the one who needs to learn something? Who should be the one guiding this character through that discovery? I think it was just a lot of introspective moments of, like, whose voice should be <laughs> the most prominent in this episode? And who should they be getting their lessons from about where this is coming from. So it was like, I think initially we had started with where it wasn't necessarily driven by Jasper. It was driven by another kid having a question. And then so Akko definitely um, was 
just incredibly thoughtful about it. Um, so it was it was nice to have a director where I could have these. They're not. I guess they're not difficult conversations if you're having them with the right person. You know, like they're they're kind of easy conversations to have if you're talking to them with somebody who's at the same place as you are with what they're trying to do with the subject matter. Um, so I felt that was a really fortunate thing to have people that I could talk to like that. We'll finish up with Elizabeth Ito after a quick break. When we come back, has Elizabeth seen any ghosts in real life and what were they like? The answer in a minute. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Fidelity Wealth Management. VP Dylan Sanders shares why it's important to understand clients' values. At times, it feels difficult to work towards just a dollar amount. And having a conversation about what wealth is for brings excitement and purpose to all the work in getting there. To learn more, go to fidelity.com wealth. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. What happens to police officers who get caught stealing, lying, or tampering with evidence? Each week, we open up an internal affairs investigation that used to be secret to find out how well the police police themselves. Listen to On Our Watch, a podcast from NPR and KQED. From the internationally acclaimed creators of Who Shot Ya comes the movie podcast, Maximum Film, starring producer and film festival programmer Drea Clark as a woman bound by passion. I saw this eight months ago on the festival circuit. And I loved it. Film critic Alonzo Duralde as a man corrupted by greed. Why watch one Hallmark Christmas movie when I can watch seven? And comedian Ifiwariwe as a man protecting a love that society simply won't accept. I think Pacific Rim is a perfect movie. And if you can't accept that, then I want you out of my life. From the makers of the movie podcast, Who Shot Ya? comes Maximum Film. That's right. We changed the name of our show to Maximum Film. But don't worry. We're still a movie review show that isn't just a bunch of straight white dudes. So tune in to Maximum Film at MaximumFun.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. If you're just joining us, I am talking with Elizabeth Ito. She's a writer and animator who's worked on Adventure Time, SpongeBob SquarePants, and more. She just created the beautiful new show City of Ghosts on Netflix. It's a unique, fascinating program that tells the story of different places in Los Angeles through interviews with real people. Let's get back into our conversation. You know, a lot of people talk about how amazing Mr. Rogers was, aptly, appropriately. We talked about Huel Hauser and how amazing he was, and I was trying to think what it was that led me to connect the two of them in my mind, which they certainly are. And I think for me the reason is that it's so rare to have such huge personalities, such, you know in Huel's case, like this huge performance as well, but both bring so much to the screen, but they're also so much characterized by their kind of humility. And that seems like, that that quality seems so evident in your show that it must have been a choice that you made, that this is a show about listening more than it is a show about telling. Uh, I feel really flattered, so I'm going to take a minute. (laughs) 
Well, I really love your show. I think it's so wonderful. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I think part of it is just that I I try to enjoy having kids (laughs) as much as I can. Um, But, like, part of that is just... I'm so appreciative of how funny kids are. And I think some of that comes from having a mom who is a public school teacher, you know, and a, a good public school teacher, you know, where I knew she really cared about the kids. And you you would hear, I would hear just when she would come home, like, I mean, just how much it meant to her to kind of listen to the kids that were in her class. Like, you know, different kids have different abilities for learning they have different needs for how they learn and feeling like she was always really sensitive and aware for that so I think like especially after I had kids I was like man there needs to be more stuff out there for kids to like to celebrate how weird and funny and unique they are and I think my feeling was like there's a lot out here that's trying to sell them something but I really want stuff that just genuinely like gets them to laugh, gets kind of the weird the weird kids. Like I was a, a weird kid, I think. My mom would probably <laughs> not like that I was saying that, but I definitely um recognize some of that in my son and my daughter, so um I think of it as a good thing. But like I'm really happy to hear that about the show because I was also really happy to sort of have have this feeling that I created a working environment that was similar. Like, I I think the people that ended up working on the show all just, like, really appreciated um, having a show that also, like, listened to the creatives that were on it, where they had this opportunity to kind of, like, not feel nervous if they wanted to question something or not feel nervous if there was, like, something where, what if we did it a different way that if they came to me to ask me about that kind of stuff, I really wanted to listen to that and I really wanted to hear it. So, um, I mean, within reason, like obviously there's points where you're like, nope, <laughs> we can't, can't do that. But for the most part, like wanting to feel like there was a, a collaborative show within animation that was kind of less of a business and more of like filmmaking. <laughs> There's an episode of City of Ghosts that's based in Koreatown, which is a neighborhood in Los Angeles that starts about three or four blocks uh, west of where we're sitting right now. And when watching it, I had that feeling that you had when you saw Nakatomi Plaza in Die Hard, which is like, I used to I used to live over there, do the show over there, and like you show, the, there's a part that takes place in a restaurant that is a block from where I lived. And I'm 40 years old. I've lived in Los Angeles, the most filmed city in the world, for 12 years or 14 years or something. And I work in entertainment. <laughs> and just seeing something from my neighborhood was so exciting to me. <laughs> and I thought, why did she choose to make this show's places real places? Because the background painting, so to speak, I'm sure you make it on computers, but the background painting, so to speak, of these episodes are photographs of places. So why are they real places and not just pictures that somebody drew that show the ideal qualities of a certain type of place for your certain story that you're telling? Again, uh, I think 
kind of going down this path of doing like hybrid documentary animated stuff. When I first started doing it with my short, the thought was just, well, actually, like if I back way up, it's because I started um, playing with putting my drawings into Instagram back before they had a lot of stuff where you could just put stickers in or things like that. And it got kind of a good response, and I, I really enjoyed doing it. And then when I got to do my short at Cartoon Network, I thought, well, maybe there's something to doing something like that, but animated, so that when you're using a, you know real voices and you're trying to make it feel real, um, that you ground it by actually having the backgrounds be real. But I didn't necessarily know if that was like affordable for TV yet, because the only places where I'd really seen that were like movies and kind of like lower budget <laughs> versions of that uh, before. Um, and then I also just thought it would be a combo of like photos and probably like CG animation, because I want them to look like they actually exist in the space. But also like similarly, the only CG animation that I'd really um, seen on TV was maybe like Garfield. <laughs> and I was like, I don't want Garfield, but we'll see. Maybe there's somebody who'll maybe, give me... Maybe Odie. <laughs> yeah. Um, Nermal might come into it at some point. Nermal, yeah. <laughs> or Eileen, was that... Was Arlene, was that uh, somebody's girlfriend? <laughs> yeah, like John's girlfriend, I think. Yeah, that sounds right. So Yeah, and then I think... When we figured out that I wasn't going to be making Welcome to My Life, the TV show at Netflix, and I was making City of Ghosts, I still wanted to keep that same idea of grounding it. Like, if we're going to do it in a real city, can we then um, try something different and, like, maybe go out to those locations that we're working in and not only sort of, like, research them by taking, like, field trips <laughs> to them, but... Can we then hire like maybe like a, a street photographer or somebody who's done photography in the city to capture it um, so that we're really capturing um, something from the lens of somebody that understands this place? And it all worked out. So <laughs> I guess that's how we ended up with real places. How does it change the show, do you think, that there are real places? I think in a, in a small but big way, uh, it really allowed us to keep like really neighborhood specific little details like honestly just keeping like the real texture of the curbs um, a lot of it is the lighting I think even though in some cases we enhanced it or we painted it um, to sort of favor a certain time of day or or whatnot um, I feel like there is like this this very specific characteristic to the light in LA um, that because we were basing it both using a real photo and basing it off of a photo. I think that um, makes it feel really, really authentic because it is authentic. <laughs> How do you cast children for a show that is this different in tone from most animated television shows that are casting children? Uh, it was kind of hard <laughs> um, but I think luckily from um, some of the experience that I had on Adventure Time had to do with like recording and who you wanted the voice to be 
there were like a lot of things really early on in Adventure Time where it was like we want people to talk with their real voices. We want them to sound like the people that we're asking to do the voices. Which is like the opposite of animation voice work in general. Most animated shows have a limited pool of actors who they just bring in for the day to do 25 voices. And that's like the skill that's most prized among voiceover actors. Yeah, and the the pros are incredibly good at it. I'm, I was always like really impressed with how I, like I wouldn't know that one voice actor had been all of these different characters that I loved. But like, yeah, for my show, it was like such a different thing, similar to what we would look for on Adventure Time. I really wanted the kids to sound like little kids, kind of like how Charlie Brown, old Charlie Brown cartoons are. And even... Like, even more so in a way where it's, like, I wanted them to not sound scripted. Like, I really wanted them to sound as if they were kids that would be shouting these things out or asking these questions. So it was really just saying, okay, first, like, honestly, we couldn't cast real actors because it was, like, this thing where if we wanted to cast non-SAG people to voice our show. We couldn't cast any SAG people, so that was already a limitation. So it was saying, hey, we need to reach out to kids, but they can't kind of like already be professional voice actors. Um, So that's one thing. And then another was just like kind of watching a lot of auditions of of kids and working with a a really good casting director to, to sort of like um, find kids who were local also to, to where, where we were at so that they would sound like the kids that they were playing. When you say local to where we were at, you don't mean local to Southern California. No, I specifically mean like local to like Hollywood. I guess Hollywood could be central to a lot of the neighborhoods we touched, like um, Koreatown or West L.A. or Lamert. I don't like I don't even know how to describe this entire coincidence except it's just that like we picked the voice of Eva we recorded her for a few and then we decided to set the Lamert episode at Hot and Cool Cafe and then it it turned out her mom um co-runs that place <laughs> so she says she's from Lamert Park in the episode, and she really is, like, definitely <laughs> from Lamert Park. So, yeah, that's one very specific example of, like, very local. How did you end up having one of the kid characters in the show uh, be non-binary? That, again, was sort of, like, a choice based off of kind of, like, my feelings about how different kids have different lives in different parts of the city. Uh, My mom was a teacher kind of on the west side, like a Santa Monica area, um, which tends to be a little bit more, sometimes a little bit more forward thinking. (laughs) Um, But it's also just like, so part of it was that Thomas's character is supposed to come from, they're supposed to come from West LA or Santa Monica. And I thought, oh, well, maybe this is an opportunity to have Thomas be non-binary or different in some way that's a little bit more embraced on that side of town. And it was also just a combination of that, plus knowing a lot of parents whose kids are non-binary from preschool. And so thinking, like, if this is a choice we can make and it makes sense for that character, let's go for it. 
Um, and it was really just that. And then telling our casting director, if possible, can we cast for this character and being able to make that work out, which was really um, nice and surprising. <laughs> My kids flipped out when they figured that out. I mean, I can't even begin to tell you how much that means to kids. And for it to be in the fabric of the show, for it not to be the premise of the show. I mean, the premise of the show is also nice, but it's not a very special episode. It's just that is one of the things about one of the kids. Just as your episode about Leimert Park is not a very special episode about the importance of jazz in American culture, you know, although that can be great, jazz is important in American culture. It's just that's part of Leimert Park, Leimert Park like... It was the jazz capital of Los Angeles, and then it was, you know, the home to the Freestyle Fellowship. Yeah, I mean, I, I was happy to be able to do a show where most stuff wasn't a very special episode, you know? And, like, I think at the end of it, honestly, just, like, not to be super tooting my horn, but, like, impressed at what we packed in without having done one episode that was, like, where it's a highlight rather than sort of just, like, built in. <laughs> Do you think that this is an operation you could pick up and move somewhere else? Or do you think this is something that only works in the context of Los Angeles, the city that you were born in? I think it could definitely move somewhere else. I'm not sure where because I have diff differing feelings about what, like, the evolution of it could be. At the very beginning, we had some conversations where when it was like, oh, let's just hypothetically say that, like this show explodes and then what do you do after for the multiple seasons? Do you stay here and do more stories? Do you go abroad? Do you stay within the United States? At the time, I think I was just so overwhelmed with like, I got to make a show that I was like, I don't know. I have no idea. Like maybe, maybe it only stays here. I don't even know how many episodes I'm going to make of this show that I haven't made yet. But I think it's interesting as a travel show. I also think it's interesting as, like, like recently I've kind of wondered, is it funnier if it's, like, what if it stayed really adjacent to L.A. and then the next episode after that was adjacent to wherever that was and then you just gradually got farther and farther out until it was, like, way out? Because, like, part of me envisioned, like, is another kid starting their own ghost club in their city like then do you go to that ghost club so yeah there's all like all sorts of ways that i've imagined it <laughs> do you have any experience with ghosts yeah um when i was about six or seven i saw a ghost in the hallway of our house that we're pretty sure was my great grandmother because it was like a leap year and she was born on a leap year, and I mean, she wasn't alive anymore at that point, so that was another factor. Uh, yeah. Can you describe what that was like? Um, I used to get really scared getting up to go to the bathroom at night when I was that age, which I don't know why I get so upset at my kids for not wanting to go in their own rooms now that I'm thinking about that. But I... So I had to go to the bathroom. I went to the bathroom, and I was sitting there looking out into the hallway, 
And I thought I saw like a kind of like a foggy thing. So if, I mean, if you've watched the show, then like it kind of was reminiscent of like Janet, the ghost in the first episode. And so I, I just yelled to my parents, like, somebody come help me. I'm scared. Um, I think somebody was like, what's wrong? And I said, there's a ghost out here. And then somebody said, go back to bed. So that's that's what I did. And then the next morning, my dad was asking me about it. Um, and he said he had seen it too earlier in the night, but he didn't want to come out because he was so scared. So he just told me to go back to bed. <laughs> that's a powerful dad move there. Yeah. <laughs> you know, what's really funny too is his friend... Recently, a family friend who's lived in Eagle Rock since I was a kid, like since before I was born, maybe, he lives nearby. So I live nearby him now. And he called me to say that he heard me on the on the radio <laughs> and or on the news. He heard me on the news. And he said, and, you know, I got chills listening to you talking about your ghost story because I remember I came over to your your family's house the day after that had happened and I came in and I saw there was a camera your dad had a camera set up on a tripod aimed at like the corner and I asked him like what's this about <laughs> and he said the whole thing and he had set up this camera because he his plan was to take a picture of the ghost the next night like he had set it up with really high speed film and he was planning to, like, try to take a picture of it really covertly because he didn't want to disturb it. I don't know. Like, I thought that was a very funny, like, weird memory of, like, my dad also trying to capture the ghost the second night. The ghosts on your show, though, aren't spooky ghosts. How would you describe what they are? I think the ghosts on my show are... They're just basically people that used to live here or, like, kind of people that haven't stopped living here, even though they might not have a body anymore. Um, but they still have opinions and they still have feelings. Uh, so they still want to talk to people about who they were and, like, what they did. <laughs> yeah, I think one of the things about living in the city, especially growing up in the city when you have a little more—maybe you probably have more sense of magic and wonder than I do— but you have this feeling of every physical place, a building, uh, every part of the built world, but, you know, other places in the city, two parks and stuff. They have all lived a life that is far beyond your life. And there have been so many lives that have passed through those places in so many ways. And you sort of, you are living with all of those things at the same time. In a way. And, you know, American, you know, Los Angeles, maybe that's 100 years or, you know, if you're talking about the Tongva people, you're talking about a, a thousand years or 2000 years or however long it was since since people crossed that land bridge from Asia. Right. And to me as a kid, it was something that I never didn't love about living in the city, that I was in this world, this world that was like then and now at the same time. Yeah, it's a strange place that way. There's a lot of old theaters that are uh, that give you that feeling, no matter when you walk in them. I think, like Bob Baker, for sure, is someplace that, um, like, 
There's something that's spooky about it to me, but I like it. <laughs> this is a marionette theater in Los Angeles, famous children's marionette theater in, in Los Angeles that is profoundly spooky. Uh, I've seen their shows a number of times and found them to be distinctly spooky. <laughs> yeah, I think I saw somebody saying they have their their show at, like a, a show at Knott's Berry Farm now, and there's there's something really fitting about those two things going together. <laughs> Well, Elizabeth Ito, your show is so beautiful, and I I love it so much. I'm so glad that I got to see it and my kids got to see it. So thank you for taking all this time to be on Bullseye. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Elizabeth Ito, our first in-studio interview in over a year. Thank you to her for getting vaccinated and for being so charming and smart and funny. If you haven't seen Elizabeth's show, City of Ghosts, I cannot recommend it enough. It is just breathtakingly beautiful and incredibly calming, a rare quality in children's television these days. And it's also just a beautiful investigation of of other people in the world um, without pretense or, or, or baloney, just open hearts and open minds. It's a wonderful show. Good for kids, good for grownups. Watch it. You won't regret it. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is created from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California. Although, as we mentioned, Elizabeth Ito was kind enough to come to the studio fully vaccinated. Get vaccinated if you're not and you're able. At my house this week, I decided to put down some sisal floor covering. Sisal is a type of grass. It's kind of scratchy, but it looks nice. The show's produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. Jesus Ambrosio and Jordan Cowling are our associate producers. We get help from Casey O'Brien on the show. Production fellows at Maximum Fun are Richard Roby and Valerie Moffat. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. Our theme song is by The Go Team. Our thanks to them and to their label Memphis Industries for sharing it. You can keep up with the show on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. We post all our interviews there. I am on Twitter at Jesse Thorne and on Instagram at put.this.on. And I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. 